Some years ago, I attended a deeply moving funeral. Uh, some funerals, I mean, all, all funerals are sad in one sense, uh, but if it's a 90-something-year-old person who's lived long and well, it's, it's, it's different. This was not that. This was for a stillborn baby. I don't know that there's a much sadder event than uh, this kind of funeral. The, uh, quite rightly, it was a desperately wanted baby, much anticipated, who without warning had died tragically early. Uh, what was so moving in particular about the funeral was that the father stood before the congregation, hundreds and hundreds of people, and told the story of what had happened, of their shock and disbelief. And then he went on to read these words with tears streaming down his face and a voice that he could hardly keep from cracking. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, and though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. To speak these words on that occasion, I'd suggest is a demonstration of immense personal strength maybe even greatness. To be able to encounter pain and sorrow and suffering of that magnitude and not to crumble in its face, to refuse to allow it to turn you inward and to spiral downward, to have an inner spiritual dynamic at work in you to stop you tumbling into despair or numbness or bitterness, well, it's just a mark of profound depth and maturity. The fact is that one way or another, sooner or perhaps later, we will all face the brokenness of life in this world more or less like this. And the question that we're looking at over these few weeks in the Minor Prophets, that section of the Old Testament that has these small oracles, these small prophecies by sometimes unknown otherwise prophets, The question that it puts to us is, what would it take for you and for me to have that kind of spiritual depth in us, to be more and more that kind of person? Now, of course, you might say that those words spoken by that bereaved father are a crock, that they represent the worst that religion can do to people, to give them some kind of false hope, pie in the sky when you die by and by an escapism that doesn't do anything to strengthen people to cope with the real world. Of course, you wouldn't say that uh, to his or his grieving wife's face. That would take more impudence or perhaps arrogance than any reasonable person would utter, could muster. You'd just think it. And I guess you might be right. You might be right. I suppose it would depend on what sort of alternative you might offer. What, what is the great atheist strategy for coping with the real suffering of this world? What other words could you give to speak on an occasion like that? And what is the fruit of that life over the long haul? 
All I'd say in response at this point would be to suggest that as a, a culture, resilience, resilience, whether in the face of slow internet or a stolen credit card or a dopey driver who smashes into the back of your car, let alone the actual real struggles of life, resilience is about as low on the spectrum of strengths as it gets for our culture. We're not a resilient culture. And that the life that this couple has gone on to live is one of enormous graciousness and kindness. It's engaged and it's substantial. The fruit of their lives is the opposite of escapist. Now, of course, those words on that grieving father's lips are the last words of the prophet Habakkuk. It's here that the book ends. Uh, from one angle, nothing is resolved. I mean, I don't know if you get that feeling. All the pain that Habakkuk has expressed throughout the book, it's all still there. He's not yet come out the other end. He's not gotten into clear skies and green pastures. He's still right in it. He's right in the pit. This is not some sort of happy, clappy book, Habakkuk. And yet from another angle, actually the one that really matters, the state of his soul, Whatever his circumstances, all the real work is done. He's not lost his joy. He's not been robbed of his strength. The pain of this world has not gotten the final word for him. And because that's the case, I'd say that Habakkuk has an enormous amount to teach us. Can, can we travel the path that he's travelled to get to that point? Especially us who need this kind of resilience perhaps more than any other culture at any other time. And the thing is, it all revolves around a, a particular posture that Habakkuk adopts. Habakkuk complains to God. Habakkuk complains to God. That's his secret. And so, as I say, we're going to continue our learning from the minor prophets, these Twelve prophets, these individuals who knew suffering. They knew suffering. They spoke out of the fires of pain. We're going to continue our learning by seeing three things, hearing three things from Habakkuk. Firstly, the basis of his complaint. Secondly, God's answer to his complaint. And then finally, the end of complaint. So firstly, then the basis of complaint. Now, what's so interesting is that Habakkuk starts in a very different place from where he ends in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and then chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 1, two, two sort of sections at the beginning and the end of chapter 1, are what Habakkuk calls his complaint. You see it at the end of chapter 2, verse 1, he wonders how God will answer his complaint. That's what he's doing. The context is the end of the 7th century BC and Israel is in a parlous state. The leadership of God's people, Israel, or at least what's left of them after the Assyrian invasions of 150 years earlier, has become entirely corrupt. Um, they are close enough to what we would call a failed state. With a rule of brutality rather than the rule of law. Sheer desperation rather than any kind of civic life. Total breakdown of cultural norms which in the case of Israel were her deep religious faith and following in the path of the, of the Torah, the instruction, the law. 
And as it's always the case in failed states, in, in this sort of outbreak of injustice and violence and brutality, it's the ordinary people who are getting smashed, always. It's ordinary people who get smashed. And Habakkuk erupts in complaint. Now, some commentators uh, have suggested that this is bad form, that this represents a lack of respect for God and maybe actually is even blasphemous. And that what happens is that throughout the book of Habakkuk, he moves from wrong, from sin, to resolution. And, and of course, there's something right with that concern. It is certainly true that the person who becomes resentful and bitter towards God because of the hardships and injustices of life also complains. Right? There's a different kind of complaint to Habakkuk, the kind of the shaking of the fist, saying to God, you can't do this or you can't do that. Perhaps uh, like Job's wife. Do you remember in the book of Job, uh, his wife has some um, kind of encouraging advice for him. Curse God and die. It's the petulance of the sulky child with, with self-absorption and curled lip. There is a way to complain to God that is disrespectful. But that's not Habakkuk. And to see his complaint in that light, I think, is to miss the point. In fact, it's to completely miss the point of the book because it's the opposite of what Habakkuk has to teach us. Look at the content of Habakkuk's complaint, chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law becomes slack. Justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, and therefore judgment comes forth perverted. Habakkuk asks two questions of God. Do you see them there? How long and why? How long and why? The first is about duration. How long will I cry for help and you will not listen? The second is about reason, purpose, intention. Why? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? How long and why? And these are familiar questions. If, if you've ever known pain, if you've ever experienced real grief and sadness, you will know these questions. Sometimes they come to form as words on your lips. Sometimes they are no more than the unworded cry of your heart. But they are the questions we ask. So what's different about Habakkuk's version of the questions? Well, it's not so much the questions themselves, but it's who they're addressed to. Uh, what I mean is this. So often when we ask the questions, they most often take the form of I. How long do I have to put up with this? Why am I experiencing this? They're, in a sense, hypothetical questions, not especially seeking an answer. They're more an expression of our pain, just a kind of cathartic expulsion of grief, more than a genuine question. But Habakkuk's questions are different. They're not addressed to himself. They're quite specifically addressed to God. God, how long will you do this? How long will you be inactive? Why do you make me see trouble? Why do you not remove this from my life? 
Do you see the difference in the question? It's not just a difference in form, it's a difference in substance. It's all the difference in the world. And what it exposes is the basis of Habakkuk's complaint. You see, he complains on the basis of the character and life of God. He knows God. He knows what God is like. He's been taught God's character and ways. He is in no doubt that God is good, that God's ways are not just and are not violent, that the Lord is against the strife and the contention that have come to characterize Israel's life. He knows God. He knows God's character and it's on the basis of that conviction which holds strong in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. It's on that basis that he makes his complaint. In other words, what Habakkuk demonstrates is that there is a form of complaint like this which is actually the expression of profound, deep faith. Of a profound belief in the goodness and faithfulness and love of God. Maybe one way to get a hand on this is to think of the alternative because it's possible to have quite a different spiritual dynamic at work uh, than the one that Habakkuk demonstrates here. You see, what can happen is that instead of that faith remaining strong in the face of the evidence around and the world about, it can subside. That confidence can become eroded. You fall into a kind of resignation, a kind of wearied giving up of hope, of simply putting your head down to make the best of things. And in particular, to look after you and your little world as best may be. And if left unattended, after a while, the wearied soul moves from resignation to cynicism, which has an even more bitter taste to it, a kind of inverse confidence, actually, that of course it could be no other way. Why would anyone expect it to be different after all. And what characterizes both resignation and then cynicism in lesser or greater degree is the turn inward. The increasingly intense orientation toward oneself to shut out the world, to shut out God, and to focus more and more on me. And I'd suggest that that's that's kind of a snapshot picture of our own culture. There's, there's plenty of complaining. There's all sorts of criticising. Just spend five minutes on Facebook. But it is of the resigned and cynical sort. Pretty sure that no one else understands things as well as I do. So often just complaint for complaint's sake. But Habakkuk is very different from that. He knows that he and everything around him is created and sustained by a good God and that is true even when it's all crumbling. And so he prays what is one of the great prayers of faith. It's a prayer of faith. You said, how long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? Because he knows who God is. And point two, God answers his prayer. God answers his prayer. You can tell that God answers his prayer because the answer that God gives 
uh, in verses 5 to 11, is couched in the same language as the complaint that Habakkuk makes. It's a, it's a kind of rhetorical device to make sure that you get the link between the two things. Habakkuk complains that he's made to see wrongdoing. God replies in chapter 1, verse 5, by instructing him to see and to be astonished. Habakkuk complains that justice never prevails, and God replies that there will be a form of justice, chapter 1, verse 7. Habakkuk complains of violence, and God replies in verse 9 in terms of violence. Oh yes, God answers his complaint. Except that God's reply is the exact opposite from that which we expect. Habakkuk knows God. That's the point. And on the basis of his knowledge and confidence and conviction about God, he complains that God can't possibly be satisfied with how things are. And so he must act. And God says, yes, I will act. But it's not going to be the way you want. It's going to be in judgment first, rather than in deliverance. The substance of what the Lord says in verses 5 to 11 is that he's going to make things worse before he makes them better. That he's going to bring judgment on the corrupt leadership of Israel. And that that judgment is going to come in the form of the mighty Chaldeans, the, the emerging world superpower of Babylon. Verse 6, that fierce and impetuous nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. It's just a kind of chilling description of imperialism, isn't it? Now, of course, if, if you have any kind of imagination, right, just human imagination, spiritual imagination, if, you, if you're able to insert yourself in anyone's situation at all, you'll realise that this is a moment of crisis for Habakkuk, isn't it? He has complained, and in effect, God has merely intensified his complaint. Before there is going to be any kind of deliverance, there is going to be judgment, purification, making things go from bad to worse. And the question in this kind of crisis is, how will Habakkuk respond? Just how deep does his faith go? Can he cope even with a no from God? It's one of the great questions for all of us, isn't it? In a sense, I don't think it's that difficult to recognise and pray about incongruity, that is, the misfit between the way the world is and who God is. For that to issue in prayer makes sense. And the first time you pray like this, you know that you've done something right. But the question this moment puts to us is what happens when it doesn't go the way you ask and hope and expect, when your prayers are not answered? at least not in the way you prayed. I think it's absolutely critical that we have two cycles of complaint by Habakkuk. Two cycles of complaint and by Habakkuk and answer by God. You see, Habakkuk's got a choice right now. At the end of this response by God, he's got a choice to throw his hands up in despair and just give up. To, to reveal that his faith was, was so deep and no more. But what is so fascinating, intriguing, inspiring, so right about Habakkuk is that in response to God's disappointing answer, Habakkuk doubles down. He doesn't back away from his deep foundation. He knows God 
and he hangs onto that with utter tenacity. He knows, verse 12, that God is from of old, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Feel the profoundly personal texture of the prayer, my God, my Holy One. That's all I've got in this broken and miserable and sad world. That's all I've got and I'm not going to let it go. My God, my Holy One. He doesn't waver. He doesn't water down who God is. He doesn't stand at a distance. He knows that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, verse 13. And so again, he asks the question, if that's the case, why do you look on the treacherous? He stands on God's character and he prays the simplest, boldest, most properly formed prayer that can be prayed right in the midst of pain. He prays God's character, urging God to act. Do you see why this double back and forth between Habakkuk and God is so important? It captures the sustained dynamic that all our prayers take when life is full of pains. Habakkuk has come face to face with disappointment. He's come face to face with disappointment in his circumstances. And then he comes face to face with disappointment in God. And that will reveal something. That will reveal whether his faith is deep and real or whether it's only superficial and fleeting. And he doubles down. He's not going to be put off. And so God answers a second time. Chapter 2, verse 2, God's second answer to Habakkuk's second righteous complaint. And he answers with comfort and hope. There is still a vision. That, that is a vision for joy and justice and peace. But it is for the appointed time. It speaks of the end, uh, the, the goal to which all things are headed, uh, have always been headed actually, when every tear is wiped away and that there is no more crying and that there is no more mourning and it does not lie. And the point is, if it seems to tarry, if it seems to be a long time coming, if the days and the decades and the centuries mount up, then what faith that has been refined and tested and proved in the fire like Habakkuk's faith will do is to wait for it. There is still a vision. It's for the appointed time. Habakkuk knows who God is. And if the circumstances of life the harsh and brutal realities do not match up to that. He is not going to let those circumstances win. He is not going to let the pains and sadnesses have the decisive word in his life. He is not, in other words, going to say that he knows better than God about the whens and the hows of life. He is going to continue to trust God's character. That's why the alternatives are so starkly put in chapter 2, verse 4. Do you see this? Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. 
but the righteous live by their faith. What, what Habakkuk's saying here is that there really are only two alternatives in life. And the crucial thing that Habakkuk teaches us is that suffering will more and more make it clear which of them has the dominant hand in your life. There are the proud. Now, of course, pride can take the form of angry hostility to God. It can take the form of sullen resentment towards God. But either way, what Habakkuk says about the proud is that their spirit is not right within them. That is, they are convinced that they know better than God. That they would do a better job than God. That they're sufficiently wise and good to know the whens and the hows. Or there's the righteous. Righteous not in that sort of brittle, prissy sense of people who always have their socks pulled up or come to a complete stop at every single stop sign. No, righteous in that they know that if God is big enough to complain to, listen to this, it's very, very important, okay? You've got to understand the logic of this. This will save you an immense amount of grief in your life. If God is big enough to complain to, if God is big enough to be held responsible for the events in this world, if he's that big, then he's also big enough to be the one who can rightly and wisely decide the whens and the hows. That he will have reasons and purposes and ways which will be completely beyond us. We're creatures. He's the creator. In other words, that knowledge of God's goodness and holiness and bigness includes knowledge of God's wisdom. And what that means is that the righteous live by faith, by trust in the character of God. It's the pointy end of the message of Habakkuk, actually. He speaks out of the fires of suffering, and so he speaks with enormous authenticity. And what he invites each one of us to see more and more is that you've got to decide, do you know better than God or does God know better than you? In each moment, in, in every round of this cycle that we see Habakkuk going through, complaint, answer, disappointing, complaint, answer, disappointing, complaint, answer, disappointing. At every time it happens, again and again throughout life, all through our days, Will you trust yourself, your knowledge? Will you get to the point where you trust your wisdom and your timing and your justice? And Habakkuk says, don't do that. Don't do it. No, trust God. His knowledge, his wisdom, his timing, his justice. Don't be among the proud and live according to your own lights. Be among the righteous and defer. Defer to God and hold on with utter tenacity to who God is. Right in the midst of when the world is crumbling around you. That's the kind of strength that Habakkuk has to offer us.
which leads to the final um, brief point, the end of complaint. You see, Habakkuk in chapter 3 prays a, a new prayer. It's interesting, chapter 1 and 2 have this cycle of complaint and response and then complaint and response and then chapter 3 it's kind of a whole new section it's a it's a prayer or a psalm even you might say it rehearses the same themes and in it Habakkuk uh, looks back to the great event in Israel's life the exodus this is where God demonstrates his character you see he looks back to the exodus when God came from Teman the holy one from Mount Paran chapter 3 verse 3 and saved Israel he looks back to that moment, that enormous moment, the Exodus, and says, I know what you did of old God. I know this is who you are. This is the kind of God who you are. I stand in awe of your work. And his prayer is the same prayer. It's a prayer of complaint. In our own time, revive it. And with exactly the same structure, we too are invited to look back. We look back to another great exodus. Actually, the greatest exodus. The exodus of Jesus Christ from the tomb. Except that what we have in Jesus is different from what Israel had in the exodus. Because in Jesus, God brings and holds together what in Habakkuk still stand in tension. In the crucifixion of Jesus, the judgment and the holiness and the goodness of God all meet in one moment. They all meet in one event. The judgment that seems to stand in opposition to the deliverance in Habakkuk is now brought together and resolved. As Jesus himself bears the judgment of God. Precisely as a gift of the love of God. He bears the judgment of God so that we never have to because he bears it for us. He takes our sin and its judgment upon himself so that we can take his sonship and place with the Father upon ourselves. And God's great stamp of approval on Jesus Christ is that he raised him from the dead the exodus his beloved son in whom he was well pleased and so you see we too live by faith it's, uh, Habakkuk 2 4 is actually one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament because it so captures what it is to be a Christian except now taken up a whole you know five octaves or something like that to, to, because the, the, the trust that we can have in who God is is demonstrated with utter clarity in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We too live by faith, faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Actually, the Apostle Paul who wrote those words put it even more intensely than that. Faith in the Son of God who loved me. Every one of us, me's who loved me and gave himself up for me. We live by faith. And part of that means that we will meet the deep pains and sadnesses of life with this kind of right complaint. So can I ask you to do a little reflection? How long since you've complained to God? Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to do that. Allow Habakkuk to instruct you 
what it is to pray God's character to him. Complaint which stands on the character of God, not not whinging and petulance. Complaint that prays the character of God to God. Because as you enter into that kind of prayer, the confidence that we see in Habakkuk means that we can speak these words with him even in the face of tragedy. You can be this kind of person more and more. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, it is dark. Right now it's still dark. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Amen.